Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn back to Galatians, the fifth chapter, Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> this morning what we're going to do is we're going to continue uh, again in our exposition of this passage of Scripture. And we are now really getting into formally uh, those uh, works of the flesh that the Apostle Paul mentions there in Galatians chapter 5. What we're going to do here today is we're going to take a look at the first four, at least in the King James, the first four sins that are mentioned. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there are actually probably four categories of sins uh, that Paul makes mention of in what I believe are 15 or 17 uh, uh, lists of sins that are given overall. Uh, those categories are basically sexual sins, uh, religious sins, social sins, and sins that really affect our own personal nature. All sin affects our own personal nature. But when Paul gets down to the end there in uh, verse 21, he talks about revelings and drunkenness. And that's usually something that applies uh, to the individual themselves, not having a kind of an outward implication. But even that has to be said with qualification because we know the destruction uh, that is brought on by drunkenness and revelings and, and such like. But this morning, we're going to take a look at that first category of sins that are mentioned there uh, in the passage of Scripture. Uh, and again, we'll take our, uh, the Word of God and I'll read verses 19 through 21 to you. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And here we find the following. The Apostle Paul writes the following. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Uh, I'm sorry. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness idolatry, wrath, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revilings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we're going to look in the weeks to come at each of these sins. We're going to deal not only with the somewhat archaic language that the King James uses for some of these sins. We'll bring them up to date, as it were, as we have our exposition of them. But what I want to do is I just want to remind you before we go forward here, before we look at what is very a very difficult passage of Scripture to look at, because in a very real way, it's a mirror. It reveals to us things that are inherent in our persons by way of nature. <clears throat> Sometimes, excuse me, <clears throat> Sometimes they are there by way of practice. Sometimes they are there by way of those things that we struggle against. And what we need to make sure that we do and understand as we approach this passage of Scripture is to see it from the bigger perspective of the passage itself. And I say that because if you remember, one of the things that we've been emphasizing in the previous weeks is the reality that if you and I walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And what I want you to understand is that these works of the flesh are really manifestations of the lust of the flesh. And if the scripture tells us that if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, we'll see that these works of the flesh will not manifest themselves in our lives. And so in a very real way, even before we get to the end of the sermon, where I hope to explain to you and show to you uh, the way in which God has given us the ability to live above these things, to not fall into these things, I remind you again of what the, the Apostle Paul has been saying all the way along, that the Spirit of God is your great aid, and the Spirit of God is the great agent, and the Spirit of God is the means by which you and I can live the Christian life that he has called us to live to. Do you remember what I said last week about the, about the love of the Spirit of God for your soul? 
Do you remember how I said that the Holy Spirit loves you so much that he works, Christ, he works to form Christ in you? Do you remember what I said about that idea that the, that the Spirit of God loves you to such an extent that he is very jealous for your affections for Jesus Christ? Do you remember what I said last week about the love, of, uh, the love of the Holy Spirit for you who is working in you again all those elements of holiness and sanctification? I want you to remember this morning that the Spirit of God loves you. He loves you in such a way that he will not be satisfied to leave you or me in our present state as it were. He will continue to form Christ in us. That's how much the Spirit of God loves you. We made the emphasis last week, again, one of the great marks of the love of the Spirit of God is that he abides with us forever. Remember, we talked about that reality, reality that the Spirit of God doesn't look within our soul and say, I would never go there. First and foremost, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, makes us a suitable habitation for the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful thing to think of, isn't it? And so again, as we come into this delineation of the sins, of the works of the flesh, I want you to be aware, I want you to always have in the back of your mind that the Spirit of God who loves you is a sanctifying spirit. And if you and I will walk in the Spirit, we will be kept from these sins. These sins that not only bring, uh, again, not only are offensive to God, but these sins which are so destructive to our own well-being. But I want to emphasize, let me say this, I think it's in our day in which we live, it's, it's, very, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very common to emphasize the destructive nature of sin, and we should do that. But before sin is destructive to ourselves, it is dishonoring to God. And again, when we, when we look at sin and when we try to understand why it's such a heinous thing, we must understand because it is a sin against a holy God. And yes, it brings destruction to ourselves, but primarily it is against God and his holiness. Well, as I said before, what do I want to do here this morning? I want to set before you again these, this passage of Scripture and the various sins that we see listed there. But as I said before, when we talk about the, uh, the works of the flesh, I want you to be aware that they are the manifestation of the lust of the flesh. Look there uh, back uh, here earlier in uh, Galatians uh, chapter, um, I believe it's here, uh, and forgive me for my mind is, is, uh, is, is kind of all over the place here this morning. I'm surprised I had this, this sermon pretty much memorized in my mind before I, before I came here this morning. But if you look here in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this, Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I'm purposely drawing a connection between the lust of the flesh, which is the source, and the works of the flesh, which are the manifestation. And what I want you to see, as I've said here already a couple of times, is that if we will walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We will not be given over to the works of the flesh. That's the first thing that I want you to see and understand. The other thing I want you to know by way of the works of the flesh is that you must uh, be aware of the fact that the works of the flesh are not to be mentioned among the people of God. We are to strive against them. We are to fight against them. We may fall prey to them at times, but we are never to stay in them, if I can say it that way. Always remember, there is a difference between a person who, who falls into a sin and a person who willingly goes into a sin. There's a great difference, you know. There's a difference between somebody who may, who may stumble into a sin and there's a difference between somebody who looks to go to that sin. And again, what I want you to see and understand is that when Paul talks about the works of the flesh or the lust of the flesh, he says it in such a way as that it shows to us that these things designate the life of the unbeliever. 
He brings this out in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. He says this, among whom, again, that great passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where he's talking about how we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. Remember, he starts out in chapter 2, verse 1 there. You who were once dead in trespasses and sins. And he goes to describe again the state of the unconverted in this way. He says, among whom we also had our conversation in times past. Listen, in the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as others It is the natural state of humanity to fulfill the desires of the flesh It is the natural state of all persons everywhere to again place self at the center of all things and live life from that perspective And Paul says that is what marks the unbeliever. That's what marks you before you came to Christ And you and I we need to hear this because we need to understand and remember that we are not the center of our lives anymore. Christ is. And we're going to bring out by way of the, the emphasis here on the, uh, on the list of this, these first uh, sins that are mentioned, these sexual sins. If you are married, let me say this. Not only is Christ the center of your life, but your spouse becomes the very center of your life as well. Again, under Christ. But there is that recognition, again, that, that the life is to be lived now in this, in this holy union that God has given. We'll get to that as we go along. So again, the, the works of the flesh, they are, they are the mark of the unbeliever. Again, every believer, again, who is, uh, 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 every believer uh, is, is, is to ensure that he or she makes no provision for the flesh. Paul says this in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that idea of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus there's that idea of, of receiving Jesus Christ by faith. And what the Apostle Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes to say this, and make no provision for the flesh. Give no opportunity for the, uh, for the lust of the flesh to come to the surface. When those lusts begin to move and begin to kind of uh, have an effect on you, put them, to, uh, put them to death by way of the grace of God. Take your stand on the promises of Jesus Christ. Call out again to the Spirit of God to give you that great aid and that great assistance to help you to walk in the Spirit. Why? Because if you walk in the Spirit, what won't you do? You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so again, the Apostle Paul says, again, make no provision for the flesh. Why am I bringing these things out? Because again, what we're dealing with here in these next few weeks will be specifically the works of the flesh. Those works that, that, that designate and mark out the unconverted. Those works and those lusts, again, that are not to be found among the people of God. Those works and those lusts that we are to make no provision for. And so I say all this to kind of give just this general introduction as to, again, these sins that are being mentioned here. What I want to do by way of a doctrine, by way of a proposition, is we come to verse 19. Again, the works of the flesh are manifest and are these. Again, the King James, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. These are all sexual sins. Again, as I said before, probably four categories of sins that Paul are using, that Paul is using here. And it's kind of interesting because one of the things that probably that is at least in the mind of the Apostle Paul, if I can even say that, what seems to be apparent as we come to this passage of Scripture, while there is a general categorization of four sins, there's something of a there's something of a disorganization that kind of mimics what sin is in and of itself. Sin is kind of chaotic. Sin is this kind of, it, it doesn't have, again, it doesn't, it, it's the works plural of the flesh as opposed to the fruit singular of the spirit. 
And so when the Apostle Paul is giving this list of, as I said, 15 to 17 sins, uh, he's, he's, he's again doing it in a way that we can kind of generally categorize them, but not, not specifically, not, not, you know, we can't nail that down too tight. But without question, the first four sins that we're going to be looking at today, they are very clearly sexual sins. It is somewhat interesting that uh, the King James does uh, retain uh, the sin of adultery uh, here in this, list, uh, in this listing of the sins. Uh, the newer translations go right to uh, uh, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness, or uh, licentiousness. And it's, it's kind of, we're going we're gonna to deal with uh, adultery here today uh, for, for no other reason than when our Lord Jesus Christ makes, his, makes mention of that list of sins. Remember we talked about that, uh, that vice list last week? 23 vice lists uh, in, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, if you look at those 23, at least 17 of them include either one or a multiple of these sexual sins that are mentioned. Sexual sin was prevalent in the ancient world as it is in our world as well. Sexual sin has been something that throughout the history of humanity uh, has always been uh, that which God has, has condemned, sexual sin, and always that which man has, man, humanity has, has given themselves over to, sometimes in very shameful ways. And one of the things I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but one of the things that I have to say, and I want to make sure that we hear this over and over again, is that this does not mean that, that, the sexual, that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is something to be shunned or something to be ashamed of. Uh, it's a genuinely a beautiful thing that God has given. It's a beautiful expression of what the, of, of, of what marriage is, of the union of a man and a wife in, in holy matrimony, a very picture of that one flesh that they become in marriage. And so again, we are not to look down on legitimate uh, sexual uh, expression or intimacy, but we are to make sure that we keep it within the bounds that God has given. And we're going to take a look at why these sins here in verses 19 through 20, especially verses 19, why they are sins. Is God just some prude uh, who uh, just uh, is looking at to, to, to uh, do away with any type of uh, pleasure in, in, in this area? Not at all. And we're going to see the reasons why uh, these things are sinful. But again, what we have here in this passage of Scripture, verse 19, these four sins that are mentioned that are clearly sexual sins, and it causes me to kind of set before you this primary point, and the point is this. All sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage is an open manifestation of the works of the flesh and is a violation of the seventh commandment, a cause of the wrath of God, a sin that marks an unconverted state, and a sin that must not be mentioned among the people of God. And so again, kind of involved here, but I want to say it again. All sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage is an open manifestation of the works of the flesh. That's the primary emphasis. But I want you to hear these other things that I've said, because I'm going to establish them here in a moment. All of these works of the flesh can be spoken of in the following way. They are a violation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. They are a cause of the wrath of God. The Bible says, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. We see in the scripture that this sin marks an unconverted state. We made mention of that there in Ephesians chapter 2. And we see that it is a sin that must not be once named among the Christian congregation. Ephesians 5 verse 3. But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Well, here you are once again. You've walked into this 
little church and you're probably getting, you're probably back on your heels and you're probably thinking, oh, here we go again. All this mention of sin and all this mention of the wrath of God and condemnation. These things are necessary to be said because of where we're at in the passage of Scripture. But I also want you to understand what Bob read this morning by way of our first reading. Whatever these things are, and however these things may have plagued you or I in the past, I want you to hear loud and clear that there is forgiveness for these sins that are the open manifestation of the flesh. Never forget, as I said last week, so often times when you have this list of sins in the very context is an emphasis on what you are now as opposed to what you were. And I have to make, I have to make mention again of the, of, the, of the passage of Scripture again. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Bob read it twice. And such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And I want you to understand, again, I can't emphasize this enough. As, as morally corrupt as we are in the United States, as morally corrupt as the Western world has become, you must understand that the world in which the Apostle Paul lived was just as morally corrupt. Hard to believe, if not more so. And why am I bringing this out? Because it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that raised the moral standards of a society at that time. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that raised sinners out of, again, the bondage of sin. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks the power of sin. And so again, when we come to this passage of Scripture where we must list and define these particular sins, sometimes I, I all week I was somewhat hesitant as to, as to how much information would be given because I don't want to, again, these things are... I don't want to incite any kind of uh, thinking that would that would draw out any kind of uh, sinful patterns or sinful thoughts. But I want you to hear this, that whatever sin you struggle with, as tenacious as, as it may seem to be, God, through Jesus Christ, breaks the power of reigning sin. You understand that, don't you? And so when I bring these things out, always here in the always here echoed in the background, such were some of you, such were some of you. That means I can be that man who is no more, who is no longer what I once was. And so again, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, verse 11. And so again, all these path, all the all these, all this idea by way of introduction, so that we can come now to our outline. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to we're going to take a look again at the uh, at the works of the flesh manifesting themselves uh, through sexual sins. That's the first thing we're going to do. Secondly, we're going to try to understand what they are and why they are sins. I think this is important because I want you to know and understand that this is not just something that God is arbitrarily setting out as this why something is a sin. We're going to try to understand why these things are sins and why they are and, uh, and, and what they are and why they are sins. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to see the means whereby God has given us uh, to avoid uh, the very sins that we're that we're speaking of here. Well, again, as I said before, you you have to understand that these sexual sins are manifestations of the flesh. It's interesting how many times, uh, again, the prohibition uh, comes to us in Scripture uh, concerning these types of sins. 
Let me read to you a passage from the Apostle Paul. Uh, you might want to turn there. Uh, it's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. It's a very important passage of Scripture when it comes to uh, the believer's uh, sexual conduct, uh, how he or she conducts him or herself um, in society and in, and in the church. And the Apostle Paul says this. I'm reading from the ESV here. The Apostle Paul says this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. Again, the Thessalonians were, were living again in, in, in conformity with uh, the, the call that uh, Paul had given to them. And Paul was encouraging them, do it more and more. You're living a righteous and holy life. Just do it more and more. He goes on to say in verse 2, <clears throat> For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we're going to see that one of the one of the words that the Apostle Paul uses in the list in verse, 19, in verse 19, one of the words is a very generic word for all types of sexual immorality. And what Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture is flee from all sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each one of you may know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. This body that God has given to us. We use it as an instrument of holiness. We use it for the purposes of God, you see. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Remember I said those sins mark the Gentiles? And Paul is specifically saying these are things that are not to be uh, uh, seen in the people of God. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now it's interesting, this six verses there's a lot of questions as to what this sixth verse is actually saying when it says here that no one transgress and wrong his brother. Uh, one of our one of the newer translations is more interpretive than it is a translation. Basically says this, that no one defraud his brother in regard to that brother's wife. And so there seems to be an implication of staying away from all forms, not only of sexual immorality, but specifically of adultery. Verse 7, for God has not called us to uh, for impurity, but, but in holiness. Now listen to this, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Two things I want you to, I want you to notice here. Number one, these things are not just Paul's kind of narrow-minded, uh, prudish, kind of puritanical view of human sexuality. That's not what it is. These are the commands of God, Paul is saying. But secondly, I want you to notice this. The passage ends with who gives to you his Holy Spirit. Why does he go there? Because I go back to what we learned in Galatians 5, 16. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so what I want you to see is that, if I can say it this way, you know, woven into the very text itself are the means by which we can avoid these things. And so again, this emphasis on this sexual purity. Remember I said before that that these sexual sins mentioned in Galatians 5, uh, verse 19, are a violation of the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment, we know it, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in that commandment, again, God gives to us, again, the, the prohibition against any type of sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage. Marriage, that beautiful picture of God's love for us being expressed on the human plane of our love for one another. Marriage, that place that God has given that we might enjoy one another in, in true physical fulfillment. That, 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 that institution that pictures for us the very love of God for his people.
the love of Jesus Christ for his church. And so this is why, again, these sexual sins are to be avoided, as I said before, not because God is just saying, I don't want anybody to, God is the one who, who you've heard it said before, God is the one who, who invented sex, if I could say it that way. God has given it to, he has given it to us, uh, not only for procreation, but for enjoyment as well, and for the coming together of husband and wife. Again, you've heard me say the sexual sins are the, are the mark of the unconverted. The, the, the wrath of God comes upon uh, the, those who practice these sec sexual sins. Again, Ephesians 5 and 6, we looked at this last week. Again, uh, for this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. You see, sermons like this must be preached. Passages of scripture like this must be incorporated in the daily life. We must take these things. Why? Because the wrath of God comes upon those who are guilty of such sins. And so again, in this passage of scripture, we are reminded of all these things concerning these, these sins that are mentioned here. Well, Paul goes on to give the list then. And the first thing that he mentions in the King James is adultery. As I said before, in your newer translations, the word adultery is probably not there. It's interesting, though, when we look at the, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, when he gives his own vice list, his own list of sins, he mentions adultery. Hard to think of, of, uh, of any sin of the flesh that would not be more understandable than adultery. It's interesting that in the newer translations, as I was said before, and forgive me for not having my numbers right here, <clears throat> the King James either lists 17 and the newer translation lists 15 sins. And I think, that is the, I think that's the breakdown there. It's interesting that the two sins that are not listed in the newer translations, <clears throat> and I'm not speaking against the newer translations here at this point. I'm not doing that. But it is interesting that the newer translations leave out adultery and murder. Hard to think of any two sins that would be more representative of the works of the flesh. But again, that's what we have. And we're going to be looking at both of those sins because they're in the King James here. I'm preaching from the King James for reasons, and uh, we'll bring these out. But first of all, the first thing that we see is adultery. Well, what is adultery? Adultery is that which uh, is defined as uh, sexual relations uh, between uh, a married man and a woman, or between a married woman and, 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 a, and a man. It's that idea that there is a violation of the covenant of marriage. A married man engaging in sexual activity with somebody other than his wife. A married woman engaging in sexual activity with somebody other than her husband. This is adultery. And what we see again is that adultery is, a, is, a, is, 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 is such a grave sin because, as I said before, it violates not only that, that covenant that, that a man and a woman has made before God. Do you remember when you took your marriage vows? Probably something like this was said. You know, we're gathered together in the presence of God and before many witnesses. And it was the idea that by way of a vow, you were, solemnly, you were solemnly swearing and promising before God to love your spouse until the day of your death. You remember again these things. And because then adultery violates that vow, it is a very, very serious sin. But not only because it violates the, the marriage vow, it also violates, as I said before, that picture of God's exclusive love for his people, God's exclusive love for his church. 
Now we know again that God loves the world in a way that we're not ashamed in any way to say. We will preach that whenever we have the opportunity that God so loved the world. But we also know that there is a love, a covenant love that God has with his people, that Christ has with his church. And we have to emphasize that. And when, and when adultery is entered into, that not only is the covenant broken that was made between those two individuals, a man and a woman, but we also see that it is a violation. It distorts that image or that picture of a covenant that God has with his people. <clears throat> and this is why, as I said before, this sin is such a serious sin. Now, we all know that when it comes to uh, adultery or in any of these sexual sins, primarily the prohibition is against the act of the sin. Uh, again, in, in John chapter uh, 8, verses 3 and 4, again, the, the passage of the woman taken in adultery. Again, you, you know the passage, the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and they had set her in the midst, and they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And so again, we know that adultery is an act. It's a physical act. It's an act that again, that is, that is entered into with somebody who is not the, other, the, the, uh, the spouse of that person, whether it's a man having, again, relations with a woman who is not his wife or a woman having relations with a man that is not, uh, uh, that is not her husband. And so we see it here. But we also know, again, by way of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this becomes a challenge to us, doesn't it? That by way of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be guilty of this sin, not by the physical act, but we can be guilty of this sin mentally. This is a great struggle, isn't it? Because we all know, again, where our minds can run. We all know, again, the difficulty of taming our thoughts. We all know, again, the, the challenge that there is in, in submitting and bringing every thought captive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But this we must do. Why? Because we can be guilty of this grievous, grievous sin, not only in act, but in mind, in thought. And so again, we, we look to the grace of God. We look to the, to the work of the Spirit. We know that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me give you just an example here. So there you or I are, and I'll say it again that way, there you or I are, and there we are facing uh, 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 temptation and, and, and facing all these struggles. And if, can I say it this way? Can I, can, I, can I say it this way? You know how that these, 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 these things stick in our mind. It may be by way of an image. It may be by way of a word or a thought or an expression. It may be something that you hear in a song and it sticks in your mind. Can I say this in that great struggle against these sins, against that sin, that you walk in the spirit in this way, that you take up number one, the whole armor of God? That you make recourse to the word of God as that great preventative against falling into sin. Wherewithal shall young men cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy word. Do you know what it is to be, can I say it this way? Do you know what it is to be spared from the ongoing onslaughts of temptation by taking recourse to those passages of scripture that you've memorized? Oh, you mean you've not memorized scripture? You're the worst for it. You're the worst for it. Scripture memorization is the great aid in the believer's walk. And so when the believer is confronted with these thoughts that sometimes bubble up out of nowhere, these thoughts, again, that afflict the mind, oh, run to the word of God, take up the shield of faith, use the sword of the spirit, you see. And so again, against this sin, God enables us to be victorious over it. Adultery, again, as I, as I said before, was sadly just, it was, it was a common thing, and especially in the Gentile world. 
One of the things that's interesting is that when you go to Leviticus 18, and not many people like to go to Leviticus 18 uh, through 20, uh, Leviticus, Leviticus 18 is, again, very clearly denouncing certain sexual practices as well as uh, uh, Leviticus uh, 20. It's kind of interesting how, how Moses writes uh, Leviticus 18 through 20. Um, you have uh, the prohibition against uh, uh, particular sins, in chapters 18 and then 20, and then in chapter 19, it's that great, it contains that great passage of scripture where, where we see, uh, be ye holy for I am holy. And so the prohibitions are against sin or in order that we reflect the holiness of God, you know, certainly for the, the covenant people of God uh, in the Old Testament. But this sin of adultery, again, was, uh, is, was seen uh, even in the Old Testament as a violation of a covenant. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, I'm going to be reading from the NIV here. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, again, you have uh, you have Solomon, you, you know, giving his son uh, counsel and advice, and he is he is he is encouraging uh, Solomon to stay away. The King James says uh, strange women. Some of the uh, newer translations say foreign women, and the idea is this. Is that no adulteress was to be found among the people of God? If somebody, if a woman was was an adulteress, it would have been consistent with those with women that would have been uh, outside of the covenant people of God. And so, in Proverbs chapter two, verse sixteen, and this is what I want you to see. Again, this wisdom that Solomon is trying to convey to his to his son, it will save you from the adulteress. King James says, "Strange woman, from the wayward wife with her seductive words." Here is her method, we might say. And notice again here, words, you see. We might think that it would be appearance and looks, and that has to be dealt with as well. But here it is, seductive words. And that's why I was saying sometimes the very songs that are played on the, uh, on the radio, the things that, the tunes that we hum over and over again, oftentimes if we're observant of those words, they may be conveying things that are, are doing our souls no good. Again, Proverbs 2, 16 and 17. Um, in, in verse 17, Solomon goes on to say this, who has left the partner of her youth, this is the adulteress, now notice, and ignored, are you ready for this, the covenant she made before God. Marriage is a covenant. It's a holy covenant. It's a covenant, again, that where the individuals come before God and they, and, and they, and, and they vow before God to love their spouse exclusively and to remain faithful to them. And so here we are dealing with this sin of adultery. But what do you need to hear? Not just what adultery is. What a poor preacher I would be if I just did that. You need to hear that there's forgiveness for such sins. You need to hear what that woman who was brought before Jesus by that crowd of men, you need to hear what she, what she heard. Where are those who condemn you? Are they any here? None, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. So let's finish the statement, right? Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus didn't, quote-unquote, if I can say it this way, just kind of turn a blind eye towards sin and say, oh, those categories of sin, we need to leave off those. You know, Moses, he wrote that 14, 1,300 years ago. Why do we need to listen to Moses? Of course not. I speak like a fool, like, like Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, saying things like this. Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. You see, every manner of sin has this, has this, has this voice of Christ, again, being spoken to it. And what is my sin? What is your sin? Christ says to you and says to me, I don't condemn you. My blood cleanses you. 
My spirit will indwell you. Go and sin no more. Oh, for these views of sin that take it so light, to think that sin is not a big deal. Sin is disastrous. We've not even gotten into uh, the effects of, of sin on, 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 on the self and on the soul. How that sin, again, destroys and it corrupts. And so, again, you and I, we need to hear, go and sin no more. You know, there's no, there's no forgiveness for the impenitent, for those who refuse to confess and repent their sins. The method, the means of, repent, of forgiveness is by confessing our sins. But for those who will repent, that beautiful statement in Psalm 130, verse 7, with thee there is plenteous redemption. Plenteous redemption. You see, again, your sins, no matter how great they are, your sins, no matter how much they weigh you down, plenteous redemption in Jesus Christ, you see. And so here was this sin of adultery. Well, we have three more sins to work through, and we're almost at 12 o'clock. But by God's grace, we're going to try to get through these. The next sin that's mentioned here is the sin of fornication. This is your first sin that's probably mentioned in your, in your again, your newer translations. And this word for fornication is kind of like a, like a catch-all for any type of sexually immoral sin. Any type of sin entered in, any type of sexual sin entered into outside of the bond of marriage is usually covered under this word. It's kind of interesting. This word is the word where, and again, for, I, I hope this is, you know, I, like I said, I'm somewhat hesitant to talk about these matters, but but they're here. We must talk about them. This this word that Paul uses again for fornication is the word that we get the word is the is 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 a word that we get from which the Greek word. Um, our, our English word is the word for pornography. It's por pornea. And what's interesting is that this word pornea first applied to prostitution and to prostitutes. And prostitution was rampant in the ancient world. Uh, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that for right now. One man writes about this uh, sin of uh, fornication, this pornea, this this prostitution, he insightfully says the following. <clears throat> he says, Pornea is the love, and he's speaking about Pornea as it's attached to prostitution. Pornea is the love that is bought and sold, which is no love at all. The great error in this is that the person with whom such a love is gratified is really not a person at all, but a thing a mere instrument through which the demands of lust and passion are fulfilled. True love, however, is the total union of two personalities as they become one person. The two shall be one. And so each finds their fulfillment in union with the other. Pornea describes the relationship where one of the parties involved can be purchased and discarded as a thing where there is no respect for that person which has become a thing. You see, this, this sin, as I said before, this word is really a general, it's almost like a catch-all word, but by way of its development, it started out first within the realm of prostitution. Now again, this sin was rampant in the ancient world. It was rampant in Egypt. It was rampant in the land of Canaan that the people of Israel were going into. In, uh, in Leviticus, uh, uh, in Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, you have God saying to his people, 
Don't do the sins that were committed in Egypt and don't do the sins that are committed in the land of Canaan. You are to be a holy people unto me. And that marks us as believers as well. Again, there's differences. We're not Old Testament Israel. We understand that. But that same idea of the way that we approach this, this whole matter of human sexuality. We're not to be informed by the word, by the world who tells us what sex is and what isn't. Who explains to us certain things that, are, that run contrary to the word of God. We're not to follow that. And, and, I, and I say this particularly, again, if I can put it this way, and forgive me, if I put it this way, us older ones here, we're not challenged in this, but, but the few younger ones that are here are challenged in this. If people in places of authority saying, again, this type of sin or that type of sin is okay. Not even mention sin. This, this, this choice or this, this, or this, this, this preference or this, this, uh, this, you know, this way of identifying. The Bible refers to these as sins. And, it, and it, it grieves our hearts to know that such young and vulnerable are, are really bearing the brunt of all this. And our prayers are for, for you, our, our hearts are with you. We, we will stand with you. May God give us grace. And those of us, again, who are older, will we let these little ones down? Those of us who are older, will we leave off the, 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 the clear call that we see in Scripture? Those of us that are older, to challenge the watch, to challenge the watch television or movies anymore, isn't it? We find ourselves in a very weird way, asking ourselves the question, should I really be entertained by that which God has clearly called sin? Should I? Maybe it's time to change the channel. Maybe it's time to turn the TV off. Maybe it's time to, to get another movie in the queue or whatever. It's strange, isn't it? And so again, as Israel was not to be marked by the sins of Egypt, nor were they to participate in the sins of Canaan, so for us as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given us, again, those, those bounds in which the beautiful act of marital intimacy can be enjoyed. It's a wonderful thing. And so again, these, these, these words, these, these sins. This word for fornication was not only spoken against by the Apostle Paul, but even the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in Matthew chapter 15, but listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ said to churches who were under false teaching that were making allowance for the sin of fornication. Two of the churches in Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed on the idols, and to commit fornication. It is, it, it is, it's almost bizarre for us to think back and to realize, and I, I hesitate to say so much of this, that in the ancient world, so much of, of idolatrous and pagan religion had sexual practices connected to them. And how was it that in the church of Jesus Christ, that type of footing can gain, that type of teaching could gain footing? We think 
that we're shocked by that. However, when we see the things that churches are embracing and teaching in our own day, there are churches who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, teaching Balak. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And unto the church, and unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her, with a great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give to every one of you according to your works. Do you see why the Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived? Paul was shocked that there was in the Corinthian church a, a, a man who had descended into such a level of, of immorality that, that he was even having relations with his stepmother. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes this, I can, and I'm reading from the uh, new, uh, from the NLT. This is a very, this NLT, it seems to be easy to read so many times because it's, it's, it's more interpretive than it is, a trans, it, than it is translative. Um, so sometimes it can miss the mark. Sometimes it might clarify things. I don't necessarily uh, commend it, but I have to admit at times it does capture things. First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it translates that passage as follows. I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality going on among you, something that even the pagans don't do. Remember Paul says that the works of the flesh are manifest or clear. Even the unconverted can know that there are things that are just beyond the bounds. Something that even the pagans don't do. And I am told that a man in your church is living with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves. But you should be mourning and in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Acquiescence to the sexual sins of the culture is not something that a church should be proud of. It is something that a church should stand against. Now, all purpose of church discipline is never that that person is cast off forever, if I can say it that way, but it's always to restore. It's always to bring that individual back to a place where he or she understands and know, I, I was sitting there. And for this man here in Corinth, we know that that man did again repent. So fornication. The next sin here is mentioned is uncleanness. And this is an interesting word because it could be used in one sense for anything that's unclean. My car can be unclean. My, 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 my study can be cluttered. Uh, my, my clothes can be uh, dirty from the end of the day after, after work. And the word unclean can mean that. It would kind of moved over from a, a normal, we might say, use of the word uh, to, to something of a, of a word that was used to, to indicate ritual purity. So if there were certain religious practices that were, uh, that were violated, that would be quote-unquote unclean. 
it comes though to really rest in uh, the, the moral and the ethical uh, kind of realm to designate again any type of sin that defiles, any type of action that defiles. And here Paul is purposely using it again in regard to uh, sexual practices. He makes mention of this word in a number of cases or in a number of places, but the idea here is this. It's, it's where those of us who are older remember you know, saying something in disgust, saying in disgust that somebody has a, a dirty mind or such and such is a dirty old man. It's that, that's the use of that word. It, it conveys that which is morally impure. And so the Apostle Paul here again is saying that this is a manifestation of the flesh. Those activities that, that defile, those activities, again, that bring harm, uh, that, 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 uh, that uh, offend God and, and bring harm to ourselves, these are those sins that might be classified as uncleanness. Now, what's interesting is that there is a sense in which this word is even more uh, odious than the word for um, fornication. It's something of a something of a of a of a, of a I'm going to say it in advance. It's 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 an advance in a wrong way. It's not a it's not a good advance, but it, there's something of a, of a greater severity of the sin. So anytime, especially in our old translations, uh, when we have this word unclean, it's, it's in the King James in a number of places. It, that's what it's referring to. It is referring again to to, to that sexual sin that defiles. And then the last sin that is mentioned here is the sin of lasciviousness in the King James. Well, the sin uh, here, yes, of lasciviousness uh, here in the King James. You might have uh, licentiousness in, um, in, you, in your translations. And this word goes even further than uncleanness. And what this word is, uh, this word is a word that really conveys any lack of moral restraint. This is that type of sin when all the brakes are taken off. This is that sin that only has a gas pedal and no brake. This is that sin that maybe generations ago, generations ago would have been engaged in under the cover of darkness that is now engaged in in broad daylight. This is that kind of sin that maybe those of us who are old enough to remember when individuals clamored for the quote-unquote right for two consenting adults, notice not a husband and a wife, but when individuals clamored for the right for two consenting adults to do whatever they want in the privacy of their own bedroom, to go from the privacy of the bedroom into a parade down Main Street and into a classroom in our elementary schools. That's, that's, what this, that's this lasciviousness. It's the breaking of all moral restraint. And I ask you the question, first of all, I say this, you must understand that this is what marked the ancient world. This is not something new to humanity. Why am I saying this? In one sense, I could be saying that humanity has never known such wickedness as our day. And if you said that to me, I probably wouldn't challenge you on that. But I want you to understand that this is what the first century Christians were dealing with. But the power of the gospel saved men and women from this environment. The power of the gospel was sufficient to break the power of sin. The power of the gospel was such that by way of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, 
and by way of the love of God for the soul, and by way of the ongoing work of the Spirit of God, and by way of the cleansing power of the Word itself, there were a people, and that day, till this day, and until the day that Jesus comes, that will be able to live a life that is marked by walking by the Spirit of God and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So understand, of course, we live in a day that is just marked by such wickedness. We're, we're shocked by it. We, we can't believe that. And, 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 and let me say this. I, I, let me say two things. Number one, let me say this. It hurts to know that to whatever responsibility I have had in setting forth the word of God, that in my lifetime, when I was trying to exercise the ministry given by God, our culture has descended in this. And let me say to you, Our culture and its sins and the sins of the coming generation in a very real way have to be laid at our feet. Have we stood as we should have in our day? Have we said with our voices and our actions such things should not be done. Such things must not be done. Such things can't be done. But there's power in the gospel, you see. So I was reading an old commentator on this passage of Scripture. Not real old. You know, um, maybe from the early 20th, mid-20th century. And I'm not saying this, I'm definitely not saying this in any way to impress, believe me, I'm not saying this at all. I had to stop reading his descriptions of these sins. Because I thought to myself, I don't need to hear this. I don't need these, I don't need these things in my head. And, and, and that was the that was some of the hesitancy that I have even today in describing some of these things. Now please don't get me wrong. I'm as susceptible to temptation as any one of us. But there is that whole means that God has given to us to walk by the Spirit and will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So again, this word for lasciviousness, licentiousness, again, it means debauchery, sexual ex excess, absence of restraint, insatiable uh, des desire, a behavior completely lacking in moral restraint, extreme immorality, and you see, these are the things that the church of Jesus Christ in all ages is having to deal with. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things dearly beloved for your edifying. He's bringing these things out. He's making mention of this man who can't be living with a stepmom. He's making mention of the fact, again, that sexual morality can't be entered into. And why is he doing it? To be a prude? To be uh, this one who's just so hard to deal with? No, he's doing it in order that you and I might be edified. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as I would, and that I shall be found unto you as you would not. 
lest there be debates and envyings, wrath, strife, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. You notice here that these are the works of the flesh. And he goes on in verse 21 to say this, and lest when I come to get, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many that have sinned already. Now listen, and am not repented of the uncleanness. There's that. There's that word uh, again that we've already mentioned. That thing that 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 uh, that act that defiles, of fornication, that generic word for sin, and of lasciviousness, that word again that that removes all moral restraint which they have committed. And Paul is saying again to the Corinthian church, you must stop these things. These things, again, like he says in the Ephesians, must not be named once among you. Why am I bringing this out? I'm bringing it out so that you and I might know that there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only to save us from sin, but to keep us from sin. Not only to cleanse us from sin, but to enable us to walk in the ways of God. And so again, here's the description of the word. Now, why are these, what are, now again, why are these sins, sins? And I'll move very quickly here. I'm keeping you very long. I'll move very quickly here. Number one, these things are sins because, number one, they are a violation of the will of God. Remember the, uh, the old uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, uh, question 14, if my memory serves me right. Uh, what is sin? Sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. Sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. And so, again, these very, these very actions are sins because they go against what God, is, what God has commanded and what God wills. Number two, these sins break the marriage covenant. And again, the, uh, which, which is given to us, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of uh, proper uh, sexual relations are given to us there in the seventh commandment. And again, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, those are questions 72 and 73. But lastly, again, why are these things sins? Because they distort the image of God's covenant love for us as his people. And that idea of a unique, that idea of a, we'll say it again, I'll say it, of a, of a monogamous love, that idea that love is expressed to one person, you see, that is the picture of God's love for us. So much more to say. But let me just say this then. This is what these sins are. This is why they are sins. And now this is how they are to be avoided. They are to be avoided and they can be avoided by understanding that the gospel came into a morally corrupt world and it elevated it out of its debauchery and filth. And the power of the gospel is the same today. That man that I was, uh, that I was reading as I came to the end, kind of skipped over some of the stuff and I came to the end. One of the things that he says that it's well nigh miraculous that the work of the gospel was able to bring about such moral transformation. And it's true today as well. The gospel still changes and the gospel still transforms. And so while you may seem to be just inundated by a corrupt world, I'm saying to you that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only can you be free from its pool, you can be cleansed from its stain, and you can walk in a way that is pleasing to God. How are these sins to be avoided? By confessing them. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Thank you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Again, when he had purged them, when he had when he by himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And I come again to that passage that we've heard over and over again then today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you. I'm saying to you, your sins, whatever they are, whatever they may be, are no hindrance to the saving and cleansing power of Jesus Christ. You see, as the old song says, there is still power in the blood. There is still that means whereby you and I can live a life again, free from the destructive and from the destructive power of sin to ourselves and the offensive power and the, and the offensive nature of sin to God. We can be free then from our sins. Well, thank you for staying with me for so long and let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do ask and pray now that you would give us grace, Lord, to be aware of these works of the flesh, these things that are manifest and these things that are clear. And help us, we pray, Lord God, to live by the power of your spirit, to walk in the spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How we thank you that such a savior is ours, that every stain and every violation of your holy law has been cleansed by his blood. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. With this in mind, we're going to change our last hymn. Uh, we're going to sing hymn number 258 uh, rather than the one that is listed, hymn number 258.